Welcome to the Learning Capacity Podcast, where we explore stories from around the world. We hear from educators, parents, students, entrepreneurs and scientists about innovations that help make learning easier and more successful. I'm your host, Peter Barnes. In today's episode, we look at the fascinating story of how neuroscientist Dr. Michael Mersnick established the principle of brain plasticity beyond a shadow of a doubt. For this contribution to neuroscience, he's been awarded the Kavli Prize, the neuroscience equivalent of the Nobel Prize. How does someone earn the title, the father of neuroplasticity? Let's explore Michael Mersnick's journey by listening to extracts from The Brain That Changes Itself the best-selling book by Dr. Norman Doidge. In Chapter 3, Doidge describes how Dr. Mersnick battled the weight of conventional neuroscience thought and attitudes with a series of ingenious brain experiments, and in the process designed the basis of one of the two primary cochlear implants available today. As a consequence, he helped develop software which enables people to improve their brain function for learning, work, sport, or simply improved mental health. Michael Mersnick is a driving force behind scores of neuroplastic innovations and practical inventions, and I'm on the road to Santa Rosa, California to find him. His name is the most frequently praised by other neuroplasticians, and he's by far the hardest to track down. Only when I found out that he would be at a conference in Texas, went there and sat myself down beside him, was I finally able to set up a meeting in San Francisco. Use this email address, he says, and if you don't respond again, be persistent. At the last minute, he switches our meeting to his villa in Santa Rosa. Mersnick is worth the search. The Irish neuroscientist Ian Robinson has described him As the world's leading researcher on brain plasticity, Mersnick's speciality is improving people's ability to think and perceive by redesigning the brain by training specific processing areas called brain maps so that they do more mental work. He has also, perhaps more than any other scientist, shown in rich scientific detail how our brain processing areas change. This villa in the Santa Rosa Hills is where Mersnick slows down and regenerates himself. This air, these trees, these vineyards seem like a piece of Tuscany transplanted into North America. I spend the night here with him and his family and then in the morning we are off to his lab in San Francisco. Those who work with him call him Mers to rhyme with whirs and stirs. As he drives his small convertible to meetings, he's been double booked much of the afternoon, his grey hair flies in the wind and he tells me that many of his most vivid memories in this, the second half of his life, he's 61, are of conversations about scientific ideas. I hear him pour them into his cell phone in his crackling voice. As we pass over one of San Francisco's glorious bridges, he pays a toll he doesn't have to because he's so involved with the concepts we are discussing. He has dozens of collaborations and experiments going on all at once and has started several companies. 
He describes himself as just this side of crazy. He is not, but he is an interesting mix of intensity and informality. He was born in Lebanon, Oregon, of German stock, and though his name is Teutonic and his work ethic unrelenting, his speech is West Coast, easygoing, down to earth. Of neuroplasticians with solid hard science credentials, it is Mersnick who's made the most ambitious claims for the field. That brain exercises may be useful as drugs to treat diseases as severe as schizophrenia. That plasticity exists from the cradle to the grave. And that radical improvements in cognitive functioning, how we learn, think, perceive and remember, are possible even in the elderly. If you are sceptical of such spectacular claims, keep in mind they come from a man who has already helped cure some disorders that were once thought intractable. Early in his career, Mersnick developed, along with his group, the most commonly used design for the cochlear implant, which allows congenitally deaf children to hear. His current plasticity work helps learning disabled students improve their cognition and perception. These techniques, his series of plasticity-based computer programs, Fast for Word, have helped hundreds of thousands. Fast for Word is disguised as a children's game. What is amazing about it is how quickly the changes occur. In some cases, people who have had a lifetime of cognitive difficulties get better after only 30 to 60 hours of treatment. Unexpectedly, the program has also helped a number of autistic children. Mersnick claims that when learning occurs in a way consistent with the laws that govern brain plasticity, the mental machinery of the brain can be improved so that we learn and perceive with greater precision, speed and retention. Clearly, when we learn, we increase what we know. But Mersnick's claim is that we can also change the very structure of the brain itself and increase its capacity to learn. Unlike a computer, the brain is constantly adapting itself. The cerebral cortex, he says, is the thin outer layer of the brain. It's actually selectively refining its processing capabilities to fit each task at hand. It simply doesn't learn, it's always learning how to learn. The brain Mersnick describes is not an inanimate vessel that we fill. Rather, it is more like a living creature with an appetite, one that can grow and change itself with proper nourishment and exercise. Before Mersnick's work, the brain was seen as a complex machine, having unalterable limits on memory, processing speed and intelligence. Mersnick has shown that each of these assumptions is wrong. Mersnick did not set out to understand how the brain changes. He only stumbled on the realisation that the brain could reorganise its maps. And though he was not the first scientist to demonstrate neuroplasticity, it was through experiments he conducted early in his career that mainstream neuroscientists came to accept the plasticity of the brain. In the 1960s, just as Mersnick was beginning to use microelectrodes on the brain, two other scientists, who had also worked at John Hopkins and Mount Castle, discovered that the brain in very young animals is plastic. David Hubel and Torsten Weisel 
were micromapping the visual cortex to learn how vision is processed. They'd inserted microelectrodes into the visual cortex of kittens and discovered that different parts of the cortex processed lines, orientations and movements of visually perceived objects. They also discovered that there was a critical period from the third to the eighth week of life when newborn kittens' brain had to receive visual stimulation in order to develop normally. In the critical experiment, Hubel and Weasel sewed shut one eyelid of a kitten during its critical period, so the eye got no visual stimulation. When they opened the shut eye, they found that the visual areas in the brain map that normally processed input from the shut eye had failed to develop, leaving the kitten blind in that eye for life. Clearly the brains of kittens during the critical period were plastic, their structure literally shaped by experience. When Hubel and Weisel examined the brain map for that blind eye, they made more, one more unexpected discovery about plasticity. The part of the kitten's brain that had been derived of input from the shut eye did not remain idle. It had begun to process visual input from the open eye as though the brain didn't want to waste any of the cortical real estate and had found a way to rewire itself. Another indication that the brain is plastic in the critical period. For this work, they received the Nobel Prize. Yet even though they had discovered plasticity in infancy, they remained localizationists defending the idea that the adult brain is hardwired by the end of infancy to perform functions in fixed locations. The discovery of the critical period became one of the most famous in biology in the second half of the 20th century. Scientists soon showed that other brain systems required environmental stimuli to develop, and it seemed that each neural system had a different critical period, or window of time, during which it was especially plastic and sensitive to the environment, and during which it had rapid, formative growth. Language development, for instance, has a critical period that begins in infancy and ends between eight years and puberty. After this critical period closes, a person's ability to learn a second language without an accent is limited. In fact, second languages learnt after the critical period are not processed in the same part of the brain as the native tongue. The notion of critical periods also lent support to ethologist Conrad Lorenz's observation that goslings, if exposed to a human being for a brief period of time, between 15 hours and 3 days after birth, bonded with that person instead of with their mother for life. To prove it, he got goslings to bond to him and follow him around. He called this process imprinting. In fact, the psychological version of the critical period went back to Freud, who argued that we go through developmental stages at a brief windows of time, during which we must have certain experiences to be healthy. These periods are formative, he said, and shape us for the rest of our lives. Critical period plasticity changed medical practice. Because of Hubel and Weasel's discovery, children born with cataracts no longer faced blindness. They are now sent for corrective surgery as infants during their critical period, so their brains could get the light required to form critical connections. Microelectrodes had shown that plasticity is an indisputable fact of childhood. 
and they also seem to show that like childhood, this period of cerebral suppleness is short-lived. Mersnick's first glimpse of adult plasticity was accidental. In 1968, after completing his doctorate, he went to do a postdoc with Clinton Wolseley, a researcher in Madison, Wisconsin, and peer of Penfolds. Wolseley asked Mersnick to supervise two neurosurgeons, Drs. Ron Paul and Herbert Goodman. The three decided to observe what happens in the brain when one of the peripheral nerves in the hand is cut and then starts to regenerate. It's important to understand that the nervous system is divided into two parts. The first part is the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, which is the command and control centre of the system. It was thought to lack plasticity. The second part is the peripheral nervous system, which brings messages from the sense receptors to the spinal cord and brain and carries messages from the brain and spinal cord to the muscles and glands. The peripheral nervous system was long known to be plastic. If you cut a nerve in your hand, it can regenerate or heal itself. Each neuron has three parts. The dendrites are tree-like branches that receive input from other neurons. The dendrites lead into the cell body, which sustains the life of the cell and contains its DNA. Finally, the axon is a living cable of varying lengths, from microscopic lengths in the brain to some that can run down to the legs and reach up to six feet long. Axons are often compared to wires because they carry electrical impulses at very high speeds, from 2 to 200 miles per hour, towards the dendrites of neighbouring neurons. A neuron can receive two kinds of signals, those that excite it and those that inhibit it. If a neuron receives enough excitatory signals from other neurons, it will fire off its own signal. When it receives enough inhibitory signals, it becomes less likely to fire. Axons don't quite touch the neighbouring dendrites. They are separated by a microscopic space called a synapse. Once an electrical signal gets to the end of the axon, it triggers the release of a chemical messenger called a neurotransmitter into the synapse. The chemical messenger floats over to the dendrite of the adjacent neuron, exciting or inhibiting it. When we say that neurons rewire themselves, we mean that alterations occur at the synapse, strengthening and increasing or weakening and decreasing the number of connections between the neurons. Mersnick, Paul and Goodman wanted to investigate a well-known but mysterious interaction between the peripheral and central nervous systems. When a large peripheral nerve, which consists of many axons, is cut, sometimes in the process of regeneration, the wires get crossed. When axons reattach to the axons of the wrong nerve, the person may experience false localization so that a touch on the index finger is felt in the thumb. Scientists assume that this false localization occurred because the regeneration process shuffled the nerves, sending the signal from the index finger to the brain map for the thumb. The model scientists had of the brain and the nervous system was that each point on the body surface had a nerve that passed signals directly to a specific point on the brain map, anatomically hardwired at birth. Thus a nerve branch for the thumb always passed its signals directly to the spot 
on the sensory brain map for the thumb. Mersnick and the group accepted this point-to-point model of the brain map and innocently set out to document what was happening in the brain during the shuffling of nerves. They micromapped the hand maps in the brains of several adolescent monkeys, cut a peripheral nerve into the hand and immediately sewed the two severed ends close together but not quite touching, hoping the many axonal wires in the nerve would get crossed as the nerve regenerated itself. After seven months, they remapped the brain. Mersnick assumed they would see a very disturbed, chaotic brain map. Thus, if the nerves for the thumb and the index finger had been crossed, he expected that touching the index finger would generate activity in the map area for the thumb. But he saw nothing of the kind. The map was almost normal. What we saw, says Mersnick, was absolutely astounding. I couldn't understand it. It was topographically arranged as though the brain had unshuffled the signals from the crossed nerves. This breakthrough week changed Mersnick's life. He realised that he and mainstream neuroscience had fundamentally misinterpreted how the human brain forms maps to represent the body and the world. If the brain map could normalise its structure in response to abnormal input, the prevailing view that we are born with a hardwired system had to be wrong. The brain had to be plastic. How could the brain do it? Moreover, Mersnick also observed that the new topographical maps were forming in slightly different places than before. The localizationist view and that each mental function was always processed in the same location in the brain had to be either wrong or radically incomplete. What was Mersnick to make of it? He went back to the library to look for evidence that contradicted localization. He found that in 1912, Graham Brown and Charles Sherrington had shown that stimulating one point in the motor cortex might cause an animal to bend its leg at one time and straighten it at another. This experiment Lost in the scientific literature implied that there was no point-to-point relationship between the brain's motor map and a given movement. In 1923, Carl Lashley, using equipment far cruder than microelectrodes, exposed a monkey's motor cortex, stimulated it in a particular place and observed the resulting movement. Then he sewed the monkey back up. After some time, he repeated the experiment stimulating the monkey in the same spot, only to find that the movement produced often changed. As Harvard's great historian of psychology of the time, Edwin G. Boring, put it, one day's mapping would no longer be valid on the morrow. Maps were dynamic. Mersnick immediately saw the revolutionary implications of these experiments. He discussed the Lashley experiment with Vernon Mountcastle, a localizationist who, Mersnick told me, had actually been bothered by the Lashley experiment. Mountcastle did not instinctively want to believe in plasticity. He wanted things to be in their place forever. And Mountcastle knew that this experiment represented an important challenge to how you think about the brain. Mountcastle thought that Lashley was an extravagant exaggerator. 
Neuroscientists were willing to accept Hubel and Weisel's discovery that plasticity exists in infancy because they accepted that the infant brain was in the midst of development, but they rejected Mersnick's discovery that plasticity continues into adulthood. Mersnick leans back with an almost mournful expression and remembers, I had all of these reasons why I wanted to believe that the brain wasn't plastic in this way and they were thrown over in a week. In 1971, Mersnick became a professor at the University of California at San Francisco. He did research on diseases of the ear. Now his own boss, he began a series of experiments that would prove the existence of plasticity beyond a doubt. Because the area was still so controversial, he did his plasticity experiments in the guise of more acceptable research. Thus he spent much of the early 1970s mapping the auditory cortex of different species of animals, and he helped others invent and perfect the cochlear implant. The cochlear is the microphone inside our ears. It sits beside the vestibular apparatus that deals with position sense and that was damaged in Cheryl, Backy Rita's patient. When the external world produces sound, different frequencies vibrate different little hair cells within the cochlea. There are 3,000 such hair cells which convert the sound into patterns of electrical signals that travel down the auditory nerve into the auditory cortex. The micromappers discovered that in the auditory cortex, sound frequencies are mapped tonotopically, that is, they are organised like a piano. The lower sound frequencies are at one end, the higher ones at the other. A cochlear implant is not a hearing aid. A hearing aid amplifies sound for those who have partial hearing loss due to a partially functioning cochlear that works well enough to detect some sound. Cochlear uh, implants are for those who are deaf because of, of a profoundly damaged cochlear. The implant replaces the cochlea, transforming speech sounds into bursts of electrical impulses, which it sends to the brain. Because Mersnick and his colleagues could not hope to match the complexity of a natural organ with 3,000 hair cells, the question was, could the brain, which had evolved to decode complex signals coming from so many hair cells, decode impulses from a far simpler device? If it could, it would mean that the auditory cortex was plastic, capable of modifying itself and responding to artificial inputs. The implant consisted of a sound receiver, a converter that translates sounds into electrical impulses, and an electrode inserted by surgeons into the nerves that run from the ear to the brain. In the mid-1960s, some scientists were hostile to the very idea of cochlear implants. Some said the project was impossible. Others argued that they would put deaf, deaf patients at risk of further damage. Despite the risks, patients volunteered for implants. At first, some heard only noise. Others heard just a few tones, hisses and sounds starting and stopping. Mersnick's contribution was to use what he had learnt from mapping the auditory cortex to determine the kind of input patients needed from the implant to be able to decode speech and where to implant the electrode. He worked with communication engineers to design a device that could transmit complex speech 
on a small number of bandwidth channels and still be intelligible. They developed a highly accurate multi-channel implant that allowed deaf people to hear and the design became the basis for one of the two primary cochlear implant devices available today. What Mersnick wanted most, of course, was to investigate plasticity directly. Finally, he decided to do a simple radical experiment in which he would cut off all sensory input to a brain map and see how it responded. He went to his friend and fellow neuroscientist John Cass of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, who worked with adult monkeys. A monkey's hand, like a human's, has three main nerves, the radial, the median and the ulnar. The median nerve conveys sensation mostly from the middle of the hand and the other two from either side of the hand. Mersnick cut the median nerve in one of the monkeys to see how the median nerve brain map would respond when all input was cut off. He went back to San Francisco and waited. Two months later, he returned to Nashville. When he mapped the monkey, he saw, as he expected, that the portion of the brain map that serves the median nerve showed no activity when he touched the middle part of the hand. But he was shocked by something else. When he stroked the outsides of the monkey's hand, the areas that send their signals through the radial and ulnar nerves, the median nerve map lit up. The brain maps for the radial and ulnar nerves had almost doubled in size and invaded what used to be the median nerve map. All these new maps were topographical. This time he and Cass, writing up the findings, called the changes spectacular and used the word plasticity to explain the change, though they put it in quotes. This experiment demonstrated that if the median nerve was cut, other nerves, still brimming with electrical input, would take over the unused map space to process their input. When it came to allocating brain processing power, brain maps were governed by competition for precious resources and the principle of use it or lose it. Mersnick's next experiment, ingeniously simple, made plasticity famous among neuroscientists and eventually did more to win over sceptics than any plasticity experiment before or since. He mapped a monkey's hand map in the brain, then he amputated the monkey's middle finger. After a number of months, he remapped the monkey and found that the brain map for the amputated finger had disappeared and that the maps for the adjacent fingers had grown into the space that had originally mapped for the middle finger. Here was the clearest possible demonstration that brain maps are dynamic, that there is competition for cortical real estate, and that brain resources are allocated according to the principle of use it or lose it. Mersnick also noticed that animals of a particular species have similar maps, but they are never identical. Micromapping allowed him to see differences that Penfield, with larger electrodes, could not. He also found that the maps of normal body parts change every few weeks. Every time he mapped a normal monkey's face, it was unequivocally different. Plasticity doesn't require the provocation of cut nerves or amputations. 
Plasticity is a normal phenomenon and brain maps are constantly changing. When he wrote up this new experiment, Mersnick finally took the word plasticity out of its quotes. Yet despite the elegance of his experiment, opposition to Mersnick's ideas did not melt away overnight. He laughs when he says it. Let me tell you what happened when I began to declare that the brain was plastic. I received hostile treatment. I don't know how else to put it. I got people saying things in reviews such as, This would be really interesting if it could possibly be true, but it could not be. It was as if I just made it up. Because Mersnick was arguing that brain maps could alter their borders and location and change their functions well into adulthood, localizationists opposed him. Almost everybody I knew in the mainstream of neuroscience, he said, thought that this was sort of semi-serious stuff, that the experiments were sloppy, that the effects described were uncertain. But actually the experiment had been done enough times that I realised that the position of the majority was arrogant and indefensible. One of the major figures who voiced doubts was Torsten Weasel. Despite the fact that Weasel had shown plasticity exists in the critical period, he still opposed the idea that it existed in adults and wrote that he and Hubel firmly believed that once cortical connections were established in their mature form, they stayed in place permanently. He had indeed won the Nobel Prize for establishing where visual processing occurs, a finding considered one of the localizationism's greatest triumphs. Weisel now accepts adult plasticity and has gracefully acknowledged in print that for a long time he was wrong and that Mersnick's pioneering experiments ultimately led him and his colleagues to change their minds. Hardcore localizationists took notes, notice when a man of Weasel's nature changed his mind. Starting in the late 1980s, Mersnick designed or participated in brilliant studies to test whether brain maps are time-based and whether their borders and functioning can be manipulated by playing with the timing of input to them. In one ingenious experiment, Mersnick mapped a normal monkey's hand, then sewed together two of the monkey's fingers so that both fingers moved as one. After several months of allowing the monkey to use its sewn fingers, the monkey was remapped. The two maps of the originally separate fingers had now merged into a single map. If the experimenters touched any point on either finger, this new single map would light up, because all the movements and sensations in the fingers always occurred simultaneously, they'd formed the same map. The experiment showed that timing of the input to the neurons in the map was the key to forming it. Neurons that fired together in time wired together to make one map. The arrival of Bill Jenkins at Mersnick's lab ushered in a new phase of research that would help Mersnick develop practical applications of his discoveries. Jenkins, trained as a behavioural psychologist, was especially interested in understanding how we learn. He suggested they teach animals to learn new skills to observe how learning affected their neurons and maps. In one basic experiment, they mapped a monkey's sensory cortex. Then they trained it to touch a spinning disc with its fingertip, 
with just the right amount of pressure for 10 seconds to get a banana pellet reward. This required the monkey to pay close attention, learning to touch the disc very lightly and judge time accurately. After thousands of trials, Mersnick and Jenkins remapped the monkey's brain and saw the area mapping the monkey's fingertip had enlarged as the monkey had learned how to touch the disc with the right amount of pressure. The experiment showed that when an animal is motivated to learn, the brain responds plastically. The experiment also showed that as brain maps get bigger, the individual neurons get more efficient in two stages. At first, as the monkey trained, the map for the fingertip grew to take up more space. But after a while, individual neurons within the map became more efficient and eventually fewer neurons were required to perform the task. When a child learns to play piano scales for the first time, he tends to use his whole upper body, wrist, arm, shoulder, to play each note. Even the facial muscles tighten into a grimace. With practice, the budding pianist stops using irrelevant muscles and soon uses only the correct finger to play the note. He develops a lighter touch, and if he becomes skillful, he develops grace and relaxes when he plays. This is because the child goes from using a massive number of neurons to an appropriate few, well matched to the task. This more efficient use of neurons occurs whenever we become proficient at a skill, and it explains why we don't quickly run out of map space as we practice or add skills to our repertoire. Mersnick and Jenkins also showed that individual neurons got more selective with training. Each neuron in a brain map for the sense of touch has a receptive field, a segment on the skin surface that reports to it. As the monkeys were trained to feel the disc, the receptive fields of individual neurons got smaller, firing only when small parts of the fingertip touched the disc. Thus, despite the fact that the size of the brain map increased, each neuron in the map became responsible for a smaller part of the skin surface, allowing the animal to have finer touch discrimination. Overall, the map became more precise. Mersnick and Jenkins also found that as neurons are trained and become more efficient, they can process faster. This means the speed at which we think itself is plastic. Speed of thought is essential to our survival. Events that happen quickly, as if the brain is slow, can miss important information. In one experiment, Mersnick and Jenkins successfully trained monkeys to to distinguish sounds in shorter and shorter periods of time. The trained neurons fired more quickly in response to the sounds, processed them in a shorter time, and needed less rest between firings. Faster neurons ultimately led to faster thought. No minor matter because the speed of thought is a critical component of intelligence. IQ tests, like life, measure not only whether you can get the right answer, but how long it takes you to get it. They also discovered that as they trained an animal at a skill, not only did its neurons fire faster, but because they were faster, their signals were clearer. Faster neurons were more likely to fire in sync with each other, becoming better team players wiring together more and forming groups of neurons that gave off clearer and more powerful signals. This is a critical point because a powerful signal 
has a greater impact on the brain. When we want to remember something we have heard, we must hear it clearly, because a memory can only be as clear as the original signal. Finally, Mersnick discovered that paying close attention is essential to long-term plastic change. In numerous experiments, he found that lasting changes occurred only when his monkeys paid close attention. When the animals performed tasks automatically without paying attention, they changed their brain maps, but the changes did not last. We often praise the ability to multitask. Well, you can learn when you divide your attention. Divided attention doesn't lead to abiding change in your brain maps. Mersnick now became aware of the work of Paula Talal at Rutgers, who had begun to analyse why children have trouble learning to read. Somewhere between 5 and 10% of preschool children have a language disability that makes it difficult for them to read, write or even follow instructions. Sometimes these children are called dyslexic. Babies begin by practising consonant-vowel combinations, cooing da-da-da and ba-ba-ba. In many languages, their first words consist of such combinations. In English, their first words are often mama and dada, pee-pee and so on. Talala's research showed that children with language disabilities have auditory processing problems with common consonant-vowel combinations that are spoken quickly and are called the fast parts of speech. The children have trouble hearing them accurately and, as a result, reproducing them accurately. Mersnick believed that these children's auditory cortex neurons were firing too slowly so they couldn't distinguish between two very similar sounds or be certain if two sounds occurred close together which was first and which was second. Often they didn't hear the beginnings of syllables or the sound changes within syllables. Normally neurons after they have processed the sound, are ready to fire again after about a 30 millisecond rest. 80% of language-impaired children took at least three times that long so that they lost large amounts of language information. When their neuron-firing patterns were examined, the signals weren't clear. They were muddy in, muddy out, says Mersnick. Improper hearing led to weaknesses in all the language tasks so they were weak in vocabulary, comprehension, speech, reading and writing. Because they spent so much energy decoding words, they tended to use shorter sentences and failed to exercise their memory for longer sentences. Their language processing was more childlike or delayed, and they still needed practice distinguishing da-da-da and ba-ba-ba. When Talal originally discovered the problems She feared that these kids were broken and there was nothing you could do to fix the brain's basic defect. But that was before she and Mersnick combined forces. In 1996, Mersnick, Paula Talal, Bill Jenkins and one of Talal's colleagues, psychologist Steve Miller, formed the nucleus of a company, Scientific Learning, that is wholly devoted to using neuroplastic research to help people rewire their brains. Fast for Word is the name of the training program they developed for language-impaired and learning-disabled children. The program exercises every, every basic brain function 
involved in language from decoding sounds up to comprehension, a kind of cerebral cross-training. The program offers seven brain exercises. One teaches the children to improve their ability to distinguish short sounds from long. In another game, children learn to identify easily confused consonant-vowel combinations such as ba and da. First at slower speeds, then they occur in normal language, then at increasingly faster speeds. Another game teaches the children to hear faster and faster frequency glides. Sounds like whoop that sweep up. Another teaches them to remember and match sounds. The fast parts of speech are used throughout the exercises but have been slowed down with the help of computers so the language disabled children can hear them and develop clear maps for them. Then gradually, over the course of the exercises, they are sped up. Whenever a goal is achieved, something funny happens. The character in the animation eats the answer, gets indigestion, gets a funny look on his face or makes some slapstick move that is unexpected enough to keep the child attentive. This reward is a crucial feature of the program because each time the child is rewarded, his brain secretes neurotransmitters such as dopamine and acetylcholine, which help consolidate the map changes he has made. Dopamine reinforces the reward. Acetylcholine helps the brain tune in and sharpen up memories. The first study results reported in the journal Science in January 1996 were remarkable. Children with language impairments were divided into two groups, one that did fast for word and a control group that did a computer game that was similar but didn't train temporal processing or use modified speech. The two groups were matched for age, IQ and language processing skills. The children who did fast for word made significant progress on standard speech, language and auditory processing tests, ended up with normal or better than normal language scores and kept their gains when retested six weeks after training. They improved far more than children in the control group. Further studied followed 500 children at 35 sites, hospitals, homes and clinics. All were given standardised language tests before and after fast forward training. The study showed that most children's ability to understand language normalised after fast forward. In many cases, their comprehension rose above normal. The average child who took the program moved ahead 1.8 years of language development in six weeks. Remarkably fast progress. A Stanford group did brain scans of 20 dyslexic children before and after fast forward. The opening scans showed that the children used different parts of their brain for reading than normal children do. After fast forward, new scans showed that their brains had begun to normalise. For instance, they developed increased activity on average in the left temporoparietal cortex and their scans began to show patterns that were similar to those of children who have no reading problems. Mersnick's team started hearing that fast forward was having a number of spillover effects. Children's handwriting improved. Parents reported that many of the students were starting to show sustained attention and focus. Mersnick thought these surprising benefits were occurring because fast forward led to some general improvements in mental processing. One of the most important brain activities, one we don't often think about, is the, t the determination of how long things go on 
or temporal processing. You can't move properly, perceive properly or predict properly if you can't determine how long events last. Mersnick discovered that when you train people to distinguish very fast vibrations on their skin, lasting only 75 milliseconds, these same people could detect 75 millisecond sounds as well. It seemed fast forward was improving the brain's general ability to keep time. Sometimes these improvements spilled over into visual processing as well. Before fast forward, when Willie was given a game and asked which items are out of place, a boot up in a tree or a tin can on the roof, his eyes jumped all over the page. He was trying to see the whole page instead of taking in a little section at a time. At, his, at school, he skipped lines when he read. After fast forward, his eyes no longer jumped around the page and he was able to focus his visual attention. A number of children who took standardised tests shortly after completing fast forward showed improvements not only in language, speaking and reading, but in maths, science and social studies as well. Perhaps these children were hearing what was going on in class better or were better able to read, but Mersnick thought it might be more complicated. You know, he says, IQ goes up. We use the matrix test, which is a visual-based measurement of IQ, and IQ goes up. The fact that a visual component of IQ went up meant that IQ improvements were not caused simply because Fast for Word improved the children's ability to read verbal test questions. Their mental processing was being improved in a general way, possibly because their temporal processing was improving and there were other unexpected benefits. Some children with autism began to make some general progress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFastHQ.com delivering the world's best evidence-based solutions for learning since 1999. Head over to our website to read a transcript of the podcast. Go to learnfasthq.com, that's L-E-A-R-N-F-A-S-T-H-Q.com, and click on Podcast in the menu at the top of the page. And don't forget to subscribe in your listening app so you don't miss hearing any of the interesting discussions about learning, teaching and education.